Hi everybody, welcome back to BSF Lecture Talks on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 as Jesus continues to teach us in more detail about the qualities of that seemingly alien-like place that seems so radically different to us called the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of Heaven, where Christ rules and reigns. And so uh, a couple of alerts for you. Uh, in coming weeks, we will have a spring break starting um, the week of March 5th. So we will not be meeting on March 8th. And also the BSF app will be undergoing a huge upgrade. So if you have downloaded the BSF app, you'll be able to see your notes across devices and have access to lecture and the audio files as you need on the go. So great improvements coming soon. So let's begin. I have a Christian friend who went on to marry an architect in Colorado in one of the most affluent um, kind of Christian communities along the beautiful Rocky Mountain slopes. And uh, he's an architect, so he builds out these uh, really huge homes and uh, for Christians who are buying into the dream life of, of the good life, right? And so my friend invited me to check out their Parade of Homes, uh, which is a yearly event where you can go online with you know COVID, not being able to attend in person. You can go online and watch videos, video tours of these amazing homes, architectural feats uh, and delights. Uh, and um, she was just uh, bragging and just sharing with us, you know, how it, he had won for the third year in a row the best uh, design plan award. So. I went in and I was touring through the luxurious mansions with these high finishes and swimming pools, jacuzzis, multiple dining rooms and multiple living rooms and the furnishing and entertainment facilities and was just blown away. And I asked what kind of people move into these places? And uh, they were kind of people in the later years of life, their kids are gone, so there'll be just probably two of them enjoying this massive complex by themselves. And at first, as a amateur affectionado of our architecture and home design myself, I really appreciated the beauty of what I what they had made, what I was seeing. But it suddenly dawned on me that uh, listening to the owners of these luxury properties and um, what they do, uh, it was taking away so much of their focus on the things of heaven. I, I could see how the maintenance and taking care of and living in these homes was actually driving them toward a life that was all encompassed by being owned by the things that they own themselves. I mean, I, I look at the ownership of recreation vehicles and yachts and homes and, and I had home of my own at one point and I, I realized quickly that the things I own end up owning me in the ways in which they increasingly require uh, hidden costs and time and money uh, to continue to keep up the lifestyle of ownership. And privately I was thinking, do we really need bigger and bigger estate houses to live in, consuming more and more resources, just a few of us, separated from actively working into the world God has called us to minister into. And even today I had several senior friends whose homes were um, kind of, they're uh, trying to get out of these homes because they have so much furniture and heirlooms and knickknacks of life that they've accumulated they're like now bemoaning how are they ever gonna get rid of the personal artifacts that 
has become kind of made their homes into a personal museum of their life. I mean, it literally looks like a museum. I, after visiting, it's just every single open space was occupied by something. So they were bemoaning, will any of this stuff matter when the Lord calls them home? So things we think we own have a way of owning us and tightening its grip over our lives so that it starts to limit our freedom and the bandwidth to serve into the ways in which God calls us to. Things can obstruct our ability to hear God's voice and see his works because they get so much in the way of our ability to chuck it all and obediently follow the Lord. Let's look more deeply into the important principles found in this passage. So this week's um, readings, first let me share the Bible verse for this week, which is Matthew 19.26. Jesus looked at them and said, With this man it is impossible, with this man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The big idea for this week is Jesus' countercultural kingdom values. And the aim is to direct us and cause us to think about Jesus' countercultural kingdom values point his followers to God and the nature of his heart. So remember that Jesus' teaching on the nature of the people of the kingdom of heaven and their values began in chapter 18 last week with the disciples' growing sense of ambition in their association with Jesus. Where do I fall in in the pecking order or the rankings? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they asked. They may have just heard from Peter, James, and John who had visited with Jesus on the hill and saw his transfiguration. How the it was an event in which it breached, heaven breached into earth, and they saw Moses and Elijah speaking with the transfigured Jesus. It was real. Heaven was real. They were now curious what the ranking or the lineup of leadership was under Jesus' rule and reign in his kingdom. Why wasn't I invited to that? <laughs> I'm sure the other... So, you know, there's 12 of them now, and so there, there would have been nine who didn't get to experience that, and they're wondering, like, who is the, who's at the top? Is it James, John, or Peter? And they continue to miss the point, as we are often doing when we do not pay close attention to all that Jesus is teaching us. So first, look at how Jesus is calling us to countercultural commitment to himself. And we know that how we view and obey God affects how we view and relate to others and to God himself. So one of the questions asked, what are reasons why they may have asked this question? Well, I just posited one uh, thing about just the three of them having experienced a particular spiritual experience of being on the Transfigured Hill. Uh, but also the Pharisees were also missing an uh, important point here about what constitutes uh, the kind of person God is looking at. They came to Jesus to test him, again, by posing a question uh, that was contentious and hard for the, uh, the people at the time, culturally, because they've so bought into their compromise, it was hard to see it in any other light. Perhaps I might equate it to the way we think about you know, abortion as widely accepted it is now in our culture. It is, law, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, any and every reason? That's very much a question that we ask today. Uh, given that Christians, um, the st statistics tell us, have as high a rate of uh, divorces as non-believing populations throughout our country. And that's a serious indictment on the way in which we're living our lives, even as we know what Scripture says. 
They came to Jesus, and there was widespread practice of divorce, divorcing wives based on securitous, circuitous reasoning and exceptions that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were permitting using Moses' command. To speak against it would have offended many people. In the chapter notes also, when you read the chapter notes for this week, we learn that the teachers like Rabbi Shammai forbid divorce on any account except for marital unfaithfulness, but other pro uh, popular rabbis like Hillel advocated that men could divorce their wives for any reason, no matter how trivial or selfish. A wife could never divorce her husband, but a man could leave a faithful wife destitute for almost any cause without fear of consequences, according to Hillel. The Pharisees wanted to discredit Jesus, that's the point here, by triggering a response that may be highly unpopular with the people, who had settled into a moral compromise that was widespread and accepted. So, how might Jesus have answered this question by, why did he uh, answer this question by quoting Genesis? Well, first of all, Jesus answers that pointing out scriptural authority. He points out scriptural authority rooted in a fact originating from the beginning of humanity. So he goes to the roots, he goes to the foundation, he goes to the beginning to point to God's original design. Even in the face of deviations from that original purpose and design, due to various controversies, inconvenience, and uncertainties that people would have arising from, you know, people's natural tendency to want to shirk and distort everything that God has said, or he's commanded, or that he's told us he's designed in a certain way to communicate an important truth. So please remember that without a clear and factual reference to original design and purposes, we do not have valid grounding to important social arrangements and truths God has given to us. Whether that is between husband and wife, children and parents, siblings to each other, and everyone's place before the ultimate authority of God. This is a solid declaration of fact that has significant ramifications for structuring our commitments to one another in the most basic sense within the important family unit and the life therein in the family unit. The scriptures clearly show that marriage was created for a special celebration of the community life, which reflects the love of God emanating from his purposeful creation of man and woman as a kind of symbolic representation of Christ and the church. The woman is a helpmate with remarkable qualities that complement the man. And then the institution of the family brings out the riches of life that God had ordained that is an overflow of his goodness into other people and in the rest of the world. So to point out the veracity of Genesis and the truth of the garden, Jesus reaffirms not only the factual events that they're true. There was an actual man named Adam and an actual woman named Eve, the first peoples on earth. And the realities of Genesis and its account, which many scholars today are starting to you know, teach as myth and legends that are allegories pointing to moral truths, but not factual historical truth. And then this is clearly also Jesus expressing the truth of the importance of eschatological truths in the future. So they not only point, we, he's not only pointing to the past, but he's only also pointing to the future reality of Christ and the church and the intimacy of love that we share with Christ. And this story is uh, told in Matthew and Mark. So this account is told uh, about the, you know, the issue of divorce is shared in both cases. 
and uh, the fact of Genesis that God created in the beginning male and female is reiterated in chapters 1, 2, also in 5, and then revisited 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12 as well. So by contrast, today marriage is thought of as a matter of individual pleasure, convenience, and just furthering personal goals. Um, have kids, you know, look like a family, and, and get on with life until it, it's an inconvenience. There is a growing perception in our entertainment and media-oriented culture, uh, which communicates to people to stay in a marriage only as long as it works for you and helps you achieve the best possible self that you can be. It's a personal narcissism of sorts. If someone gets in the way of, of that, you know, best self that you envision, uh, they kind of communicate, sever those ties and move on. Because there'll only be other people, you know, including your wife, there'll only be baggage and barriers to your unhindered self-actualization. This is obviously counter to what Bible teaches and counter here to what Jesus is teaching us today and this week. So what is the marriage to God? It is a covenantal promise. It's an emblem of a covenantal promise. That's what God is. That's why God has joined men and women and they should be together, joined together and man shall not separate all their lives. The marriage relationship is an overflow of loving, listening, learning, dying to self, practicing self-sacrifice and working to counterbalance my selfish needs, my selfish wants, the weaknesses that I might see in other people to live in the practice of love that Jesus teaches me. This kind of love, most importantly, reflects the love of Christ for his church again. The sacrificial love Christ demonstrated sets the example. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. When Christ loved and died for the church, the church loves and submits to Christ. This is a unique testimony of a heavenly reality that no other relationship on earth can do justice to exemplify and not, cannot be substituted by any other thing. You know, even animals don't exemplify this heavenly reality, this beautiful image that God wants to bear testimony. There is nothing that can equal the beauty exhibited by a married husband and wife in their lifelong devotion of loving one another. It's as beautiful as the beauty of God seen in the majesty of all his creation in nature around us. Perhaps even more profound, it is like the beauty that we see when a parent loves their child. I have had the privilege of meeting many couples who love each other like this, who have been only devoted to their wife all life long, raising healthy, balanced children and adopting children, perhaps if they could not have their own, um, non-biological children of their own, uh, to, to into their home and raising them up in the fear of the Lord, the love of the Lord, and they provide a haven of peace and rest through their love, wisdom, and protection for all that they host and invite to their homes. Why is this important? For first, consider God's perfect plan as a context. Even in the face of challenging real-life questions, when we don't look at God for these answers, we will most often use our, the exceptions and the difficulties of our lives as an excuse to bypass God's special plan and His intention and design. Because, you know, we just don't want to be inconvenienced. Uh, we don't want the difficult thing, the difficult road. But we must always remember our thinking is incomplete. 
when we make these decisions and when we come to these challenges when we think about scripture there are consequences that come into play years later that we find are blessings we could not have entered into in any other way we have to trust god and continue to rely on him who completes our thinking into all things we are always growing into understanding but he is in the fullness of knowledge and he has made all things good and edifying so that we would when we obey him prosper and flourish into his truth as we live in it as individuals and within communities so we have a section here looking at Malachi 2 13 to 16 1 Corinthians 7 10 16 and Ephesians 5 talks about marriage separation and divorce when we look at the breaking of trust and the breaking of faith in relationships, we see how sometimes it can have traumatic and dramatic effects. Malachi 2 points out that breaking faith is like a man covering himself with violence. I've seen this happen when you know divorce devastates not only spouses, but the children that are left behind. God says, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Any work of violence in society originates with breaking faith with others, leaving a trail of mistrust creating bitterness and anger, which leads to more violence. A common story among boys and girls who experience divorce is that it leaves trauma in their lives, that it follows them through the rest of their life. They don't know what health, healthy relationships mean or how they could possibly enter it into it on their own. Their parents' divorce or infidelity affects their own self-image, the way that they see themselves, and many wrongly assume that their parents got divorced because of them. It's their fault. Followers of Christ must remember that our spouse should be the most precious person we have in our relationships among the people that we have relationships with and therefore de deserving of a very high priority in our lives under Christ. So as a Christian, how would you encourage someone who's hurt by the pain of divorce? Well, I would encourage, first of all, that as a believer, if you are already divorced and remarried, stay in that marriage that you are in currently and ensure that you honor and respect and do your utmost to honor the Lord in this new marriage. Furthermore, do not present stumbling blocks, bitterness, or disgruntlement to your uh, divorced spouse by constantly getting in her way or, or his way or you know entering into their lives in an unwelcome fashion. If you are a man in particular who has uh, uh, you know means to, of providing you have a responsibility to help help support your previous spouse and the the uh, raising of the children if you are separated from matters outside of her infidelity and remain from remarrying if you are still single find ways to reflect on how you can make amends and restore and nurture your relationship with your children so that they don't hold you know trauma and ambiguity about the situation in their hearts and live above board blameless in every way so that people who see you do not think of you to um, think of you in the wrong light in regards to your divorce um, and then be married to christ in all your life's work and become more attentive in service to others who have experienced uh, similar pain that you might have gone through the one who has suffered you can provide a degree of and level of counseling that others who only understand it in theory can only provide in limited way. You can provide solace 
and be able to provide empathy in, in remarkable ways and put that into a ministry. Put renewed energies into ministries of Christ and the church. And what are some ways Christian community can accept the single person as mentioned in this chapter? Well, uh, it is true that we do not take care of our single people in the churches as well. Acknowledging their value and implementing and welcoming them into um, uh, leadership and into areas of service that as actively as we ought. And in some ways, the Catholic Church does much better in this regard, specifically carving out ways in which celebrate singles can uh, dedicate themselves to the Lord's service uh, in important ways that we can model ourselves to in the evangelical Protestant Church. But a few things that we can be in mind for is to fully commit ourselves to the seasonal life that we're in without looking to the left or right or to be jealous about, you know, and, and griping about our singleness, complaining and finding it as a barrier, but looking into it as an, uh, a life of opportunity. Creating intimacy, fellowship, and community with other single brothers and sisters, joining them in the work of the Lord, and then providing mentorship and guidance through mature leadership uh, as singles, providing leadership to refine, train, and cultivate, and filling in areas, gaps that we see in the church and in the communities around us to serve as servant leaders with a response, sense of responsibility that those who are married cannot have um, because they're taking care of their families. Nurturing and flourishing, always within community, thinking of reinvesting them the over and passing the and being a channel of blessing that God has given to us into the lives of others. So principle one, God deserves total commitment, whether we were married or single. How is God calling you to be uh, committed to Him right now? Why has given, giving up to God more of your commitment been so difficult? Why does it continue to be so difficult when God is providing new opportunities for you? How has the larger church body failed to live authentically as God's people because we have difficulty treasuring the things of the world and being attached to them so much that we have difficulty seeing God's call and God's opportunities. And God provides many opportunities to commit ourselves to Him. How is He at work in you right now, calling you to the things around you these days about the things that you can do? We move on to the next section, Matthew 19, 13 to 15, where He calls the children to Himself. You know, children figure largely in Jesus' teaching about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And again, uh, counter to what the world teaches about the value of childlike humility, trust, and readiness to turn to God, uh, Jesus accentuates the value of this attitude. He reminds us again here that his kingdom is made up of people whose hearts are like a child's. This is hard because we are trained in our lives day in, day out to develop, you know, these heart and attitude qualities that directly are at odds to how a child is. We're trained to be in this world, kind of have this uh, demanding and commanding art and attitude. Um, you can imagine how difficult it is to keep a pure and humble, teachable spirit before God when the world increasingly teaches things like, you know, fake it till you make it, project a larger image that impresses people, dominate um, and, and project that alpha male image and have a fighting spirit for what you want. Don't let people walk over you. Don't let other people push you around. But being a, like a child doesn't mean um, that you're willy-nilly, clueless, and weak. 
it means that we are living into the sweet, teachable, humble attitude of a child and loving the purity and, and the, and the um, piety that a child might have coming to um, the Lord's feet with a heart ready to receive what he would say and longing for his attention as a child longs for the attention of his parents. So why do Christians hinder children from coming to Jesus in our world? Well, you know, please read the, uh, this week's note about the importance of children to Jesus. It's, it's a very good uh, write-up of this. To mislead and abuse children is a grave sin that God will punish. When churches abandon their responsibility to uh, children, uh, they, that's the first ministry that goes typically, right? On the hierarchy of different uh, priorities that the church might have, children's ministry is often neglected. We know this. But remember how you know many people express how important the seeds of truth sown early in their childhoods was instrumental to bringing God's word always to mind throughout their lives, so that they never far, ventured far from the Lord throughout their adult years. What you plant in childhood with God's word will last and will come back to them so that they will cling and love the Lord all their days. It is, it's not always the case, but you know it's an important time when the heart is tender uh, and it's probably the most important golden window of opportunity for us to reach children uh, before they get caught up into the world's uh, <laughs> enticements. So Matthew 19, 16, 30 goes on to talk about how worldly enticements uh, can really be a barrier to uh, achieving this submissive surrender to God. So here, a man comes with the wrong thinking about eternal life. He believes that some good work or effort could make up for, uh, make his, uh, give him some qualities or uh, qualify him to gain eternal life, such as the people of this world uh, and its religions uh, convince people to think. But we know in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For you have been saved through grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. One can only undertake the last of the Ten Commandments, as Jesus speaks about here, of loving others only by keeping his heart surrendered to understanding the first five commandments of loving God. Those are interdependent. Loving others is very much contingent on loving God. And that was where perhaps this man this young rich ruler was falling short. He saw these as checklist items to keep without any having any um, understanding of how they link back to love for God. Jesus highlights the thing he misses out on. He wants heaven more than he wants God. So Jesus invites him to join him and learn of him, to sell all of his possessions and then come follow him. But the man goes away troubled because his heart is in the wrong place. As much as we also have our hearts in the wrong place because we only partially follow Jesus many times on a part-time basis but trusting in wealth can have a big problem we can easily trust wealth to provide our sense of self safety comfort power recognition status even happiness and satisfaction we can easily make accumulating wealth the focus of our lives to supply these things but the 
do they really supply these things? You know, John D. Rockefeller, the first ever American billionaire, was asked, how much money is enough for you? And he responded, just a little bit more. Isn't it true there's no end to just a little bit more? True satisfaction will never come from wealth. Only God truly satisfies the deepest needs of our existence. Only God provides true purpose and significance. Jesus knew exactly what this man needed to do. His wealth was in the way of him trusting in God alone. Now Jesus wasn't saying that wealth is bad or that you can be saved by selling everything you own and giving everything to the poor. He was saying that you need to be totally surrendered, surrender to love God. Instead of submitting to the authority of our wealth and how we would look to other people or to think that you know we mean anything at all, anything at all only because we are wealthy, no. We cast all of those aside and we submit to the authority of God and how God will supply for all of our needs, even our emotional and mental needs and, and the ways in which we think, you know, we have such low self-esteem of the ways in which we can press into the world. God will supply. He will be our power and our strength into the ways in which he's called us to live. We surrender our love of money and love God instead. Surrendering to love. That should be our aim. That was the man's problem. He loved and trusted money more than he loved God, and that can easily become our problem as well. The lesson we learned from this is that no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how powerful or connected, we cannot save ourselves, All, no matter how much the world would teach us otherwise. Surrender is submission to authority of God. In this case, it's God's authority, and Jesus teaches we are to love him, to know him, to serve him. We love God by trusting him instead of ourselves to our wealth. We know God by spending time with Him and experiencing life with Him as He enters into our lives. And we obey and we start to see the manifestations of that obedience leading to more fruit and more delight and flourishing instead of just learning about Him without applying what we learn. And we serve God not just for what we can get, what we can receive, because, but because He is worthy. He is the one that gave us the purpose for life he's created us and designed us for himself after all and I just want to point out any significant change that we experience is through significant relationships with others and the most insignificant relationship we can ever possibly have is the one with God himself so principle number two God deserves complete surrender of our lives how's God revealing your level of surrender to love and know and serve him what areas of our, your heart has been easier to surrender to God and what areas are more difficult? How has he provided a way for you to love him and trust him? And how has God revealed himself to you in your study of Matthew? What new ways has he provided for you to serve him, to get to know him better? Embracing Jesus' countercultural kingdom values means that you will stand out counterculturally. And it may be uncomfortable to stand out at times, but God promises it will be worth it. Jesus says in the last verses of this chapter, leading into the next, of course, but here he's, he points out very uh, significant uh, promise. He says, anyone who has left houses, siblings, parents, children, fields, all these things for my sake will receive a hundredfold as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. As I think about this verse, I'm reminded of mission reports I've received this month, uh, which share about Christian missionaries, Chinese missionaries, who create companies to print the Bible and distribute them throughout the 
uh, mainland China where Bible distribution is closed. They do it in secret. Or Korean missionaries who start companies and plow profits back into building new churches and Christian schools and hospitals in third world countries. I remember also a story about a black minister, a pastor, who was a former athlete who grew up in the South. And he's using now the internet to start Bible teaching blogs and publishing discipleship training books. And he's selling them and then distributing them for pennies on Amazon and Bible.com where it's free. And these are being used, resources being used by uh, these jungle churches growing up all over Southeast Asia and throughout Africa. The people of God are discovering that they're being activated into newfound joys and passion for God's kingdom by relinquishing their loves of the world and pressing into the love for God. You know, the bandwidth that you have, when it's increasingly taken over by the things of this world, you'll find that God is always pushed out. What might you have to surrender to truly today to be fully able to see with clarity what God would have for your life? We have to create room. We have to let things go from the hands to be able to hold on to the things that God would have us hold on to anew. So let's pray for relinquishing. Heavenly Father, I hold on too much to the things of this world so that I don't have enough room in my hands for your things. Help me, Lord, to empty out my hands of those things which perish and will decay in this world, that I might hold on to the things which will have everlasting impact in the kingdom of God. May my life be about those things that are eternal, in love relationship with you. We pray and commit all of these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.